0: We are on the cusp of a major social change. Do you feel it? Even if you don't, make no mistake, change is coming, and it is going to be unforgettable. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Hart, and here on Prime Spark, where we work with and on behalf of women over 55. I want to help you find that spark that will ignite your way forward, reflect your gifts to the world, and illuminate your path through this next stage of life. Through these podcast conversations, I hope to inspire you to see how you can make a significant contribution to some of the gnarly problems that are facing us right now. Join me, and together, let's discover our Prime Spark. Hi, and welcome to Prime Spark. I'm Sarah Hart, and I'm so happy you're here with us. Prime Spark is designed for women over 55 or close, with a goal to help us all live our happiest, most fulfilling, and productive lives now and in the future. The mission of Prime Spark is to change the way our society sees and treats older women. That's a big mission, which only means we all need to be involved and we need to get going now. And today I have the pleasure of talking with Kimberly Weifling, a woman whose work I greatly admire. Kimberly helps people achieve what seems impossible, but is merely difficult. She's the author of the globally popular book, Scrappy Project Management, The Twelve Predictable and Avoidable Pitfalls Every Project Faces the founder of Weavely Consulting and co-founder of Silicon Valley Alliances. Her latest book, Turning Ideas into Impact, is an anthology with fifteen other Silicon Valley consultants. A physicist by education, she worked at HP for 10 years, and then three years in Silicon Valley startups. She's worked with over fifty Japanese companies and with people from over 50 different countries, helping organizations solve global problems profitably. Kimberly has helped to start, run, and grow many small businesses, including several that are still alive and profitable. Her superpower is turning managers into leaders and groups into true teams that can achieve impossible together. She's been described as a force of nature and is determined to use that force to make a significant positive impact on our world. Hello, Kimberly, and thank you so much for being here. Hey, Sarah. Wow,
1: I've got a lot to live up to after that introduction. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, that'll be no problem. So, Kimberly, just in getting started, let me ask you. Do you experience getting older? And if you do, what is that experience? And if you don't, why do you think it is that you don't?
1: Well, that is a great question. I often ask myself and others, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? And I'm stuck in my 40s now, but maybe 20 years ago, I said I was in my 20s or 30s. So I am experiencing getting older, but not as fast as the calendar says I am aging. And I think it's because my lifestyle, I'm still living like a a middle-aged person. I'm having parties at our house. We've got musical events. We go out, we have fun. You know, I'm I'm happy, I'm healthy. And I get to live the same life I was living maybe 20 years ago. And so I don't really notice except when I look at the calendar and say, oh, crap, how did that happen?
0: (laughs) I think it is just such a mindset, you know. It's um it just makes such a difference. I mean, there's all sorts of research now that shows that how we feel about getting older has a huge impact and um I think we've known that just from living, but now we know it for sure.
1: I've heard there are some societies where there is no expectation of enfeeblement with age. And so people they they age and get older, but they don't get enfeebled and they don't get like us. So I right. think if we expect to become rickety, we may uh, help contribute to that. I I expect to be dancing and wearing feather boas for the next fifty years.
0: <laughs> I know, and I'm sure you will. And um, go to it, <laughs> now, Kimberly. Tell us about Silicon Valley alliances. When I read that, I was just fascinated with it. I was so lucky
1: to be working with these amazing people. I was. Working with an agent in Tokyo for many years, over a dozen years, and through them, I met these wonderful people in Japan and from other places who lived in Japan, and then I collected wonderful people that I knew, and we all started serving their clients. And then at some point, the relationship it was over you know it we had seen it and done it and it was time for us to go our separate ways and so a bunch of us said why don't we start our own organization called silicon valley alliances and we started collaborating for fun and profit and
0: sometimes for both <laughs> so what do you what do you do when you, what do you have clients as a group or individuals or how does it work So each
1: of us has our own business, and when we get a client, we know we could go in there and we could serve them ourselves and take all the money, or we could do a much, much better job by bringing in a team for the highest and best interest of the clients. And so, for example, I get a client, and I contact Steph and Yvonne and Mana, and I say, hey, why don't you join me for this workshop therapy session, like I'll be in Tokyo in a couple of weeks with those people and we do a great job for the client way better than i could do by myself and then when one of them gets some business with one of their clients they say hey kimberly why don't you come and help me out and uh it's like that for the last i don't know boy five years or so especially during the last three years has been a heck of a challenge
0: yeah i'll bet that's right um well it seems to me that doing work that way is not only better for your clients it's also more fun. It is. And I learn from them. You know, we all
1: share exercises, activities, insights, ways of uh, delighting our clients. We learn and grow from each other. And then when it comes time to share the money, for example, I'll put out a spreadsheet that says, hey, here's how much we got. Here's all the expenses, write down your expenses and whatever's left. What percent do you think we all deserve? And I will collect some inputs from people to see what they think is fair and reasonable. And then the person who's the lead on the engagement decides how the money gets shared ultimately, but with
0: the input of the people involved. Oh, that's wonderful model.
1: Yeah, yeah, I like that. Open fair transparent money sharing. I don't want to risk these relationships for money, Sarah. These people are too precious to me and it would be ridiculous to risk a relationship for a couple of bucks.
0: Yeah. True, true. I wish I wish that message went out and about and deep. <laughs> and was- we
1: also for our clients we do pay what you want. You know, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic we had pandemic pricing free. Uh, For people that we had worked with for years, we said, look, we're just trying to learn and grow and pivot to virtual. Let us do whatever you need. Uh, We'll give you pandemic pricing free. And a couple of these clients said, oh, thank you, and took advantage of our offer. And after a couple of months, they said, how much can we pay you? We've got to start paying you.
0: (laughs) Cool. I love that. So you said... um, that there are a couple of predictable problems every team faces, every project faces. What uh, are a couple of those predictable problems? Well, let's
1: talk about the underlying one that's a little bit invisible. When I talk to people in organizations, they're like, "Yeah, yeah, we got problems, Kimberly." It's it's my manager, and the managers are like, "Yeah, we got problems." It's our executives, and the executives are. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, it's really the president. And and I get like, is there anybody here who feels any responsibility for what's happening here? Are we all helpless victims? Did aliens land on planet Earth, set up sick, twisted, dysfunctional organizations that suck our will to live and then leave? No, I don't think so, people. So the first challenge is to get people to own we are all contributing to the experiences we are having in this organization. And we have some power to change it ever so slightly, even. So that's the beginning.
0: I love that. I read just as you I had totally forgotten about this, but I remember I was working with an organization once and exactly same the same thing happened to me in talking to people. And I finally got to the president. And then I I had gotten curious about who is he going to blame? and i just you know interviewed him and he was blaming the board Uh. so there is always apparently somebody above that you can blame that just it was sad but it tickled me (laughs) because um there i thought i had gotten to the very top of the heap but i hadn't
1: Well, and then when you start to dig a little deeper about what really goes wrong, you know, I mean, I live in Silicon Valley, and people would like to think that technology can fix everything. Well, people, that is not the problem we're facing. Problems we are facing are fundamentally human issues, human skills, what my uh, technical friends sometimes call touchy-feely crap. And uh, that includes the number one cause of failure in global teams, as reported, By MIT research some years ago, they don't build trusting relationships. I'm sure you have some great insights about how to build trusting relationships, Sarah.
0: Oh, I don't know, Kimberly. I'm not really working with that anymore, but I do. (laughs) One of the things I do know is that you cannot build trusting relationships. This is this is all this is all circular, but until you have open communication where people are really listening to one another. Because my experience is that most of the time, we don't really listen to each other. What we do is wait until we can have our turn to talk. And you can't build trust with anybody if you feel that all they're doing is waiting for their turn to talk and not listening to anything you say. So it sounds so fundamental and you you know you tell somebody that and they look at it like duh I mean I learned that in kindergarten and you you just look at them and say well maybe but are you doing it you know a
1: person uh, we both know once taught a class based on the book time to think listening to ignite the human mind and, and that was you, Sarah. And that has transformed my life to learn how to listen that powerfully that makes other people see their own brilliance and helps bring such clarity. Listening is the number one most important communication skill. And unfortunately, people forget we have two ears and one mouth. Let's listen twice as much as we talk. Yes. <laughs> yes.
0: Kimberly, you talk about doing impossible things. And um, what impossible things have you achieved in your life? Oh, my, for me personally,
1: oh, my goodness. In 1995, I started dreaming big based on being inspired by a wonderful mentor called Barbara Fittipaldi, who I think you know. Uh, And she asked me, what are your big dreams, right? And I said, transform planet Earth for the better. And then I thought, well, I better have some smaller milestones in between. So I said, well, have a a book that's famous that people read and gets me invited all over the world and and, uh, be a globally known consultant and spreading transformational power all over planet Earth and And I thought it was ridiculous at the time because (laughs) I was working as an employee at Hewlett-Packard and I didn't even have my own business and I hadn't any clue how to write a book. So yeah, writing a book was the number one thing that kept glistening in the background for me for many, many years until I finally said, I'm going to do it. And what a wild ride that has been. (laughs) When did you start your company? I started it officially somewhere back in the 1995 era, but it wasn't really a company. Here's the thing I found out. If you put up a website, however simple it is, and print some business cards and start telling people you're in business, they'll believe you. (laughs) And I really, seriously, it was crazy because I didn't have any real paying clients and I would go to these networking events, and I was doing this part-time. I started teaching a few workshops at the Career Action Center and doing a few things at my home. And little by little, I started to realize, yes, I really want to have this business. But it wasn't until six years later, when I lost my third and final dot-com bus startup job, that I finally was shoved off the cliff. And I had to grow wings and learn to fly, screaming the whole way on the way down to really start that business February 1st,
0: 2001. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. It's, it, so what, what do you think has helped you achieve impossible things? I mean, they're scary. I mean, how how do you do it? Well, one thing is I studied physics
1: for seven years in college and grad school, and that was so hard for me. And I survived on partial credit, Sarah. So what I do is in life, I go for partial credit. You know, you can't even graduate with a B minus or a C plus. It doesn't have to be perfect. And uh, I, I learned a lot by watching small little babies learn to walk. They fall down so many times, but they just keep getting up and nobody ever goes to the baby and says, you failed, you fall down a dozen times, just crawl for the rest of your life. Heck no, they say, just keep trying until you finally do it. And and the other thing is you got to have some kind of thinking partners who encourage you when you sink into the icy couch of despair, someone you can call and they'll say, I see you striding onto the stage. The crowd rises to their feet. There's a standing ovation. They're wild about you. And I'm like, okay, okay, I can I can do it for another few months. And what I did in the beginning, I put in my calendar, I am going to keep going six months after I feel like giving up. And then when it came to the date, when I said, yep, I feel like giving up, I put in my calendar six months later. This is the day I really give up. And when that gate day came and I still felt like giving up, I said, okay, I guess I'm giving up. One week later, a huge breakthrough happened. And I'm like, okay, I'm back in the game. So <laughs> when you're finally ready to just quit, that's when the breakthrough
0: happens. Just keep going a few more minutes. So when you say the biggest barriers to achieving impossible are?
1: The biggest barriers to achieving impossible are first, People don't even know what they want. Clear, shared, bold goals and vision. They're afraid to even say it because of the fear of failure and a fear of disappointment. I mean, Sarah, if you have big, bold dreams, you might be disappointed. And your family, your friends and your colleagues, they are so kind. They don't want you to be disappointed. So they will do everything they can to kill your dreams so that you won't be disappointed. So. The biggest barrier I have found is people do not take the time to dream big, to leap into the future and create a clear and vivid image of that future that is so bright and amazing. Not only does it inspire us, but when we tell other people, they say, Hey, how can I help? That's cool. Let's do it.
0: I love that. I don't you you may be familiar with the book by Carolyn Buck Loose called The Decade Game. Oh, I don't know it. Oh, it's it's a good book. And what she does is is have you envision what um it what what, what it'll look like for you in 10 years. Oh yeah. That's because cool. yeah, because um uh a year is too short and then you can get a lot done in a decade. And somebody, I can't remember who maybe Steven Spielberg. I'm not somebody said people often overestimate what they can get done in a day and underestimate what they can get done in 10 years.
1: Well, this is very strongly based on something called lateral thinking. So if you start today and say, what should I do next? Who knows? But if you leap into a future and that's your North Star, and then you think backwards from there, thinking from the future, and then you can say, oh, here's where I need to pivot to get there. So absolutely starting in the future, thinking from the future, and then you can use that to guide you. Asking what should I do today? That is a recipe for incrementalism.
0: Yep. Uh, Carolyn Bucklew says in her words for what you just said, and I love it. Are you can't get here there? You can't get there from here, but you can get here from there.
1: Yes, exactly. And I teach a workshop every year since 1995 called Creating a Vision of Your fabulous future, and there's one more F word in there, but I won't say it, and we make collages of our futures. We leap into the future. We do news reports, headlines from the future. We speak about ourselves as if we are already living that life using powerful neuroscience tools like acting as if and speaking about ourselves in the third person, and we dwell in that, and I just did this workshop last Saturday with six of my friends and colleagues, and after one day of being in a room where people are saying, sure, why not? Sure, I can see you doing that. And having other people believe in us. And that little voice in our head that's on loudspeaker, it gets real quiet and it says, maybe we better pay attention. The possibilities are endless.
0: I think that's wonderful. I I love, I love the saying, and I, I'm not gonna get this right, but it's it's something like. The time is going to pass whether you do what you want to do or not. And when you get to that that point in time, when you get to that 10 years, that time will have passed whether you have decided to really go after what you wanted or not. And I think one of the things that happens to us as we get older, and this is encouraged by our society, is that we quit. Oh, sure. Wait, right. I'm too old. It uh, doesn't right. make sense to make long-term goals. I'm, I'm, uh, And I find that so sad. Well,
1: you know, I wake up every day and I'm like, I don't know, I can work less, make more money maybe, or I can just do whatever I want and even not worry about the money. I mean, I literally got the opportunity two years ago to work with people in Zambia. I mean, what are the chances? I grew up in rural Western Pennsylvania, the daughter of a welder. My brothers became welders. If I was a boy, I would have been a welder. And here I am living in Silicon Valley and virtually Zooming to people in Zambia about entrepreneurship, innovation. Oh, my goodness. What a dream come true. And all of this stuff that's happening for me in my life today, if I had told somebody 30 years ago I was going to do that, they would have just laughed and said, you're out of your mind, sober up.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, I, um, I'm i sort of the same. I'm, I'm, I'm from a very small town in Southern Ohio. And um, if I had told people, this is what I'm going to be doing, In 2023, they would have thought I had lost my mind. In fact, I might have thought I'd lost my mind at that (laughs) point. Well, (laughs) well,
1: I like to keep in mind my favorite uh, scientist, Lord Kelvin, who in the 1890s, late 1890s, said, heavier than air, flying machines are impossible. (laughs) Now, that was less than 10 years before the Wright brothers had their first airplane flight And, Sarah, this is even worse. There were birds when he said that. Okay, they're heavier than air for crying out loud. He couldn't imagine. And what he should have said is, well, heavier than air flying machines may take hundreds or thousands of years to develop and rely on technology I can barely imagine. But he shouldn't have said impossible. Impossible just means I can't immediately imagine how now and what percent of everything do you personally know of the entire universe? I mean, most of us would say less than 1%, okay? And just because we can't imagine how to do it doesn't mean it's not possible. Something in the 99.9999% that we don't know could make it possible, even easy or inevitable.
0: I say every once in a while when I am out in, um, well, this hasn't happened for a while, but when I used to be out in a crowd and look around, and everybody was doing this, and I <laughs> thought, okay, go back not that many years. If we had seen a movie of that, it would have been a science fiction movie. <laughs> yes, you know, right, holding at this phone, thing, at
1: your phone all the time. You're uh... well,
0: so, Kimberly. Yeah. You have <laughs> done so many things in your life. Tell me three things that you're most proud of.
1: Well, I'm most proud of recently being the kind of person I wanted to be for others during the COVID pandemic. I wrote in March 2020, I wrote my commitment, my mission, my promise was that I was going to use everything that I had become to bring light, hope, and possibility to my family, my friends, my colleagues, and my clients. We had over 200 outdoor dinners at a distance on our patio in that time frame. We had over 50 virtual concerts. We did 70 weekly meetings with my consulting buddies on how to pivot everything we did to virtual. And we helped a dozen clients who really needed some help to stop waiting for it to be over. <laughs> and we did a lot of that for pandemic pricing free. And I personally, right now, I'm exhausted and weary from it, but that is my life purpose. I said everything in my life was leading to this moment when I would be called upon to be that person who could hold the space for hope and possibility in the midst of this tragedy and chaos. So that's my number one. Oh gosh. I mean, number two is well. I'm I'm still going, keeping hope alive, <laughs> in spite of any evidence to the contrary that it doesn't make any sense. And, and I'm very, also very proud that I did manage to get a master's degree in physics. I grew up wanting to be a scientist. I loved science, and I really wanted to be a scientist. And I never became a scientist. But the fact that I was able to study science and earn that master's in physics, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do besides the pandemic crisis. Uh, so that's another thing. It's like, you know, very few women get degrees in physics and I can tell you good reasons why, but it helps me with everything else because for me, physics was almost impossible. But if you just kept working on it, eventually, gradually, you would make progress and make a breakthrough. <laughs>
0: Why did you um, leave, and maybe you don't feel like you have, but why did you leave actively being in science?
1: Well, I did work for 10 years in seven different jobs at Hewlett Packard, engineering jobs. And I would say it was pretty close to being a scientist because we worked with mass spectrometers and gas chromatographs. But the reason I really left was because after 13 years of working there and at three different startups, I was shocked to realize only once had I ever seen a project fail for technical reasons. <laughs> I, mean, and I was like, oh my gosh, they always fail because of people, process, human skills, leadership, team effectiveness, organizational cultures, and things like that. And I said, I should have studied psychology. <laughs> Oh, I decided I needed to focus on the people and the process and the products and technology. Well, that was pretty easy by comparison.
0: I am as you run into this all the time too, which you said a little bit ago. But I have for years listened to people talk about when I when I talk about that, I worked at Pfizer for many years. I tell you what they oh, you were in the soft skills. Oh and I I now say um, I really actually think of them as the higher order skills, Ooh. because we sometimes get there and we sometimes don't, and they are skills that come, generally speaking, a bit later in life. Oh yes, and so um, they're actually higher order because they they come along different at di- different time, and they have a huge impact.
1: You know, my friends in Silicon Valley do call it soft skills or touchy-feely crap, but the soft stuff is the hard stuff. And I started calling them human skills, but I like that higher order skills. And I, too, am horrified to look back on me and my early career, to, to the way I behaved, the way I treated people. When I go back and speak to my colleagues I used to work with in the beginning of my career, I say... If I'd have known that the relationships lasted longer than the jobs or some companies,
0: I would have been nicer to (laughs) (laughs) y'all. Did you ever then or do you now experience difficulties because you're a woman? Oh, gosh, you think?
1: (laughs) And it's not just because I'm a woman. It's because I'm this kind of woman. I am intense. I am in your face. I am extroverted. I am an ENFP. And I worked in the world of ISTJ, mostly engineering people. And one of my engineering colleagues told me, Kimberly, talking to you is like talking to a blowtorch. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, Sarah, even just the fact that I was a woman at all I had administrative assistants come to me and tell me, you know, we know the guy's wives. And so if you do anything, we will be telling them. And I had colleagues spread a rumor, oh, we, you know, that I was sleeping with my boss, which I wasn't. And I had another colleague forge a letter in my girlfriend's name talking about my sex life and putting it in the president's inbox. And I mean, I mean yes, yes, I have had to quit jobs several times to flee these kinds of things which targeted me. And I'm pretty sure it was not only because I was a woman, but because I was a smart and intense and unapologetic woman.
0: (laughs) How did you get to be that way? Were you born that way?
1: Well, I think we Weeflings, we have a genetic predisposition for risk taking. I got my 23andMe report and it said I have more Neanderthal DNA than 91% of the population. But I did also learn it from growing up. You know, my dad, he was scrappy and he was unstoppable. Okay, he was very harsh and challenging in many ways, but there was nothing that man couldn't do. And my mother, she was an unstoppable force of nature. She still is, and she's still an inspiration for me today. So I was lucky. I grew up in a family where anything's possible, and we had almost nothing, and we just did it anyhow. (laughs) No excuses. (laughs)
0: I was reading an article right before we came on on ageism in the workplace. Uh, Do you experience that as a consultant or not?
1: Not if I'm using touch of my appearance with Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely. There is ageism in Silicon Valley. You know, there were rumors long ago when some of the big companies started here that they would say, don't send us anybody over 30 And, you know, you can definitely feel it that as you get into your 60s here, that you are considered somewhat less relevant. Um, In Japan, where I work most of the time, people in Japan are forced to retire at a certain age. But I found out you must retire at that age, but the next day you can be hired back as a contractor. Uh, So but I find really my energy totally wipes out most of any age-related issues. And I do write off my face creams as a business expense.
0: (laughs) Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. (laughs) So tell me, Kimberly, what dreams do you still have for meeting the impossible?
1: You know, I have been lately thinking, oh, dear Lord, you cannot even drive a car where I live without having a test and getting a driver's license. But you can be the CEO of a company, the founder of a startup, the executive of an organization or the manager of a team without knowing anything about leadership and team effectiveness that's been known for 30 years. So my big crazy dream is that it is Impossible to be in a position of leadership without passing the leadership driver's test and getting a learner's permit. And we don't have this happening anymore because this, Sarah, this is contributing to a global pandemic of disengaged employees. I mean, on average, employee engagement, as measured by Gallup for the last 30 years, globally, it's only 15% of people are engaged and the best country in the world is the U.S. with like 33% engagement. Whereas where I work in Japan, employee engagement is down to 6%, which is actually 1% lower than it was five years ago. So, so, and the best companies in the world, the best organizations in the world have 70% or more employee engagement. So I want to wipe out this global pandemic of disengaged employees. And I want leaders to have to have some kind of qualifications, perhaps even before we graduate from high school. Or even grade school, we would have the basics of leadership, team effectiveness, and communication that we must pass those tests before we can move on to so-called higher ed.
0: So is is that what you would do to try to get something in um, academic places so that kids coming out of school have leadership training, leadership communication, group skills, (laughs)
1: I've been noodling on that lately. I haven't any clue how to do it, but you know, like I said before, knowing how shouldn't stop you. So yes, that's what my big crazy dream is because I personally, after going to grade school, high school, and seven years of college and university grad school, I only had one class on communication. And in that class, I asked the professor, how can I keep people from talking with me? <laughs> so, so I definitely think there's an opportunity for that. Also, I think I might be better suited to work on the other side, which is shareholders and investors are starting to get wise to the fact that organizations with low employee engagement and crappy leadership make less money. You can make more profit, have a higher stock price, and every other indicator of business success is better if you don't have
0: sh- Frappy leaders. (laughs) So I think uh, you're right. I think that's a wonderful place to start. Yes, I'm. I'm very. I've gotten very cynical about this. I think so much right now is based on money. Just follow the money. Just whatever. Whatever is happy to follow the money. And so, if you can get to them and show them how much more their organization that they're supposedly uh, responsible for, how much more could make if their leaders we're better.
1: And it's going to happen, Sarah, more easily than we might think, because a few years ago, the Stanford Population Research Institute published some stats that said there's going to be a global shortage of workers. And uh, in Japan and Germany, we'll have the highest shortages of the developed world with about almost 20%, U.S., 2 or 3%. And they predicted companies will go out of business because they cannot attract and retain the talent that they need to stay in business and thrive. And so people will have a choice. Workers will have a choice. And they will move towards organizations that are life affirming where they can be fulfilled and highly engaged where they're treated decently by wonderful leaders who understand the difference between leading and managing and where they enjoy actually
0: working that's going to happen you know that's already happening a little bit that that uh, especially younger workers and especially after working from home they're saying i'm i'm not i'm not going i'm not going to do that i'm not going back in the office i'll find another job
1: People, what people have a choice, and every time I've seen this happen in the valley where things are a big surge, people have a choice, and companies that don't really care for their people or create a healthy work environment, they will suffer, and they will get people who are more desperate for work or have to get a job because otherwise they'll lose their work visa and get
0: deported. You heard it here, everybody, from Kimberly. <laughs> So that's our time today. This has been so much fun, Kimberly.
1: It has been amazing talking with you, Sarah. Very inspiring to me as well.
0: Please join us again. You can find our Prime Spark podcast on every popular outlet. Find out more about Prime Spark at www.primesparkwomen.com. And Kimberly, if people would like to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Well, there's only one Kimberly
1: Weefling on planet Earth. There was a limit. I have written Scrappy Project Management. If you can spell my name, Kimberly Weefling, W I E F as in fun, L I N G. There's a website, weefling.com, another one, kimberlyweefling.com, or just
0: call the police. They'll know where I am, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Kimberly. And to all of you, remember you can find us on every major podcast outlet. Thank you for being here. Please spread tolerance and love. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to stay updated, you can head over to my website, primesparkwomen.com, and get my free spark guide, Seven Questions to Ignite Your Spark to help you discover your own spark. See you in the next episode.